Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Sunday, September 29, 1996. And almost halfway through the ARL Grand Final, St George were in a desperate battle for ascendancy against Manly's unbreakable defence. A penalty goal had reduced the margin to six points. An 8-2 half-time score gave the team and their fans cause to believe their irresistible finals run would end with the underdogs being the first team to hold off the Optus Cup. Enter Matthew Ridge, and a brilliant but controversial passage of play which left Manly headed to the sheds up 14-2 and on their way to cementing their status as the best team in the competition. This is part four of the Optus Cup, the 30th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Wonderful, mate. How are you? Oh, you know how it is any time I have to talk about the Dragons at length, <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially on an occasion such as this, discussing the 1996 Grand Final. So I'm, I'm really relying on you to keep us on rails tonight. <laughs> Should be a good one. I, I'm really pumped for this. As we've discussed, a, a really fun year of, of footy in the end that Passed a lot of people, us included, by at the time with everything else that was going on. Before we get into the meat of this episode, the concluding part of Chapter 30, I do have a few errata notes from the first three parts of this chapter. So firstly, in Part 1, I discussed an ad that was on TV, you know, eight or ten years ago from Channel 9 talking about the, the game's relationship to the past, this flowery tribute narrated by Rabs. Uh, Jeff Gabriel got in touch to say that it wasn't an ad for Channel 9 keeping the rights, but an ad against changes to anti-siphoning laws that could have seen more sport leaving free to air TV. So that explains the confusion I had as to why there would be an ad of, of you know an ad for that reason. Uh, secondly, it turns out Ricky Stewart did end up attending the Rothmans medal after the furor <laughs> we discussed. So thanks to Steve Mascod to bring that to our attention. Uh, Kevin Neal also ended up attending the Rothmans, as we'll find out later in this episode. So that was a really bad miss by me to cover the furor, but not work out that, you know, they did relent in the end. But isn't it like... Um like a bad result if he shows up because it's going to be a worse night for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if him and Buzz rekindled, you know, their, their old feud from a few years before. <laughs> uh, and thirdly, in part three of this chapter, I said that Dean Raper's rugby league bona fides started and ended with him. Uh, the great Albie Tallarico has let us know that that is actually not the case because Dean Raper's dad, Len, actually played for Newtown in the 1950s. But he he changed his name to Len Roper to not uh, cause confusion with Johnny Raper. So you know, there's an interesting tidbit there. When I saw the errata in your um, preparation notes, I'm like, <laughs> I just had a laugh to myself. 
like the rugby league digest community is a really cool group of blokes and the odd female. <laughs> uh, and it just occurred to me that every rugby league historian slash psychopath from the Northern and Southern hemispheres is involved in this group. So nothing's going to get past anybody. Yeah, I so, know. And, and as a longstanding pedant, I have to admire the community's <laughs> commitment to the utter pedantry at all times. So It's just so reassuring to have this safety net, a safety net upon a safety net. Yeah, 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 totally. So, so, um, so thanks to everybody for getting in touch. Yeah, yeah. And, and this goes across the board. Our egos are pretty fragile, but not fragile enough to prevent us wanting to be as accurate as possible. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but let, let's like, like regarding the anti-siphoning law propaganda ad, do you, remember, do you remember the, do you remember the fear campaign about, you know, losing sport off free to air? Like look at the world now yeah. and how little that matters. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. It was almost like, um, I don't know. It was, it was akin to the, uh, to the Grim Reaper ads for the um, HIV. Yeah, yeah. It was like sc- scaremongering its finest. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're a long way past that in, in a you know very short amount of time, relatively. But we do have a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so we should get stuck in. I just want to set up the format of this episode. So, yes, we will be covering the grand final in detail, but to get there, we're going to look at the, the semifinals, how they played out. And as losing semifinalists depart rugby league for the year, we're just going to conduct a little exit interview of their season and hopes for the future. So I'm, re- I'm really pumped for this one. So we'll get straight into it and discuss the 1996 semifinals. And the first thing to, to discuss is a change to the format of the finals, which you remember in the 1995 semis, late in the piece, it was discovered that an amazingly low number of combinations in terms of grand finals <laughs> were possible because of the structure of the format. And Warren Ryan's famous line that he wished he could find opals as often as he found faults in the ARL. <laughs> so they heeded Wok's words and did the simple crossover after week one, which allowed way more combinations than in 1995. There was always some sort of argument about the finals format for years and years and years. It seems like the most obvious thing to get right. I'm actually on Wok's side with this one. Yeah, but the the funny thing is, so the change they made then is basically the same system we have now. But at mm. the time, there was a lot of talk that fans favoured the AF, AFL-style McIntyre system, which Rugby League eventually adopted, you know, the 1v8 2v7, etc. I hate the McIntyre. Yeah, and eventually everyone came around to that. But at the time, like all the talk was, they're doing it wrong. We've got to do it this way. So once again, you can never please rugby league fans. And, you know, in another five years, I'm, I'm sure we'll get people shouting down this final system and how bad <laughs> it is and unfair. So, I mean, really, it just goes back to the fact that if you want a fair final system, it's got to be the top five. But we're never going to go back to that. Never say never. Uh, I'd like to see it, but, you know, not holding my breath. The other interesting thing, this is a, a, a weird one, that this was the year that semi-final replays were officially abolished. So up to 1996, you had the 80 minutes, then you went into extra time. But after the 10 minutes each way... If there was no result, it would be a, a midweek replay. So f- from 1996, sudden death would be introduced after that 10 minutes each way. 
it always fascinated me that like the the midweek replay, like how they could get it organized so quickly. Yeah, and, yeah. Know, like, I know because rugby leagues, you know, isn't known for its organizational skills, but it always used to just go off without a hitch. Yeah, uh, and surprisingly, they didn't try to end it all in one one sweep. And as of nineteen ninety six, if a grand final ended in a draw after eighty minutes and ten minutes each way, a replay would still be in place. Which again just goes back to the the thing where like having your grand final, your marquee event reduced to, you know, a Tuesday afternoon in you know, front of like fifteen thousand <laughs> people who could get off work, you know, it's it's not the way you want your season to end. No. So I meant to go back and find out when that was actually abolished, but uh, I didn't do so. So I'm sure someone will um, have that information for us and and get it to us. So um, we'll move on into the games themselves. And the first game I want to talk about was Cronulla versus Wests, which was won by Cronulla in the end, but Wests were ahead for much of the game, put up a mighty fight, looked great throughout, and it was... I, I, knowing how it ended, watching the game back, I was just like heartbroken for West because they like they put in so much, and it was such an unlikely run to the semi final. So I want to spend a bit of time talking about how they got there. And so nineteen ninety six started with mixed prognosis for West because there was some hope in the form of a new stadium, which was talked about uh, as you know coming in the next couple of years, and of course it did. Um, Campbelltown Stadium in you know the late 90s but this was going to be a new super stadium as it was described with a capacity of 30,000 people <laughs> I can never um I can never underestimate the unrelenting positivity of rugby league administrators despite a record uh of constant near bankruptcies they're planning for a 30k boutique stadium yeah and of course they were still on the brink of bankruptcy as they were announcing these plans so they came to an agreement with creditors at the start of 1995 that kept them afloat at that point but they were always going to stay struggle to stay competitive so, so let me ask you this like if you're a creditor of the west magpies and then you Say I will take forty cents on a dollar, and then six months later they're like, "We're going for a new thirty thousand seat stadium." How do you feel? Yeah, well, well, I think the idea is well, we know they're not never going to have the money to pay us, so maybe this will, you know, spark them a bit, and and this could be our way of getting some money, and we could always seize the stadium if if that doesn't work out. <laughs> I reckon rugby league administration is almost like gambling. It's like you're constantly losing and throwing good money after bad, but there's always that hope, you know, just around the corner. Get, we yeah. get the stadium, yeah, yeah. get back to evens. <laughs> I know. I, I love this quote from Michael Cockerell talking about the, the stadium. The temporary stands and demountable corporate boxes at the stadium may suggest a lack of permanence, but gradually the locals are being convinced that West are here to stay. <laughs> Which it's, it's surprising how often we've accepted demountable corporate boxes <laughs> at rugby league venues well it, it brings horror to my heart because toronto high school was um a, a victim of an arson attack in uh, 1995 um an ex-student come in and burn half the school down and then we were in demandables for about 18 months wow and um yeah very cold in the winter time the old demandables <laughs> uh yeah as, as every any school student in new south wales and probably the rest of the country uh demandables were, were very much a part of my schooling experience <laughs> 
but beyond the stadium, the, the the thing that was really giving the Magpies hope was Tommy Radonikus's arrival. So he'd, he'd come at 1995, as we've discussed, he, you know, got to work building their gym out of a squash court and really became became the, the perfect representative of that community. And he just inspired his players to believe and dragged the community along with him. Such a force of nature to, to, to turn it all around like that. I love it. Yeah, and like the gym thing, like we, we rightfully played that for laughs, but it does tell you something about his attitude and what he brought to the club. He's a can-do bloke. Yeah. He's not a can't-do bloke. Yeah, exactly, and it's like, We've been quoted 15k for this gym. I reckon we can knock it up for 200, and let's just do it because you know this is how we're going to operate. This is how we're going to get the club back again. It was just through hard work, through passion, and through a sense of community that he understood, like few people could have. And I love this quote by Jim Marston about Tommy. Tommy's done an absolutely sensational job. And I'm not just talking about him on the playing field. His work with the wider community has been tremendous. He's gone a long way towards unifying this entire district behind our team. There's no aloofness with Tom, and the supporters know that. He was a brilliant footballer who came to us at a difficult time. I want to talk about uh, Jim Marsden for a bit. Like uh, He and his brother, legends of the law game, mm. particularly his brother, he's now, now late, um, but Jim Marsden is the ultimate rugby league man. And it's so good to see like a big time lawyer that's not a union guy. Mm. You know? Yeah, and I, I mean West's survival in the competition is in no small part to Jim Marsden in the early eighties. So, you know, Magpies fans at that point had a lot to thank him for. But back to Tommy, I, I feel that like ultimately the success he was able to build was always going to be short term. Like the game was heading in a different direction, and like his style of motivation over actual coaching wasn't going to put the necessary structures into place. But if he was around 20 years later, he would have had enough assistance to yeah. to run that and he could have, he could have done the, the motivation yeah. from the coaching director role or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, Such that's a shame, thing, isn't it? Yeah. But he did have some tricks up his sleeve and his real secret weapon was a, a patch of dirt known as Chili's Hill. <laughs> so it was a 150 metre high uh, slope that was called Chili's Hill because it was situated behind a Chili's restaurant just near Campbelltown Stadium. Tommy at the time was quoted as saying he fell in love with the hill when he arrived at, at Campbelltown. <laughs> Is there anything more Campbelltown than naming a hill after a fast food establishment? <laughs> I mean, um, you and I have been in that area to watch a game at Campbelltown and um, it's like the magic mile for chain restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and it's seemingly an an ever evolving selection of chain restaurants. And <laughs> my interview with uh, Max Easton for the Magpie Wing, we discussed Chili's Hill. He actually, in his junior rugby league days, was subjected to that run a, a few times. And and just talking to Max about how the western part of Sydney was, and I think still to this day, is used as a testing ground for various American fast food chains. And if if you make it there, <laughs> you've got a chance at heading to the rest of the country. I wonder if I've got a Carl's Jr. because we've got one in Newcastle. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, but Tommy's love of Chili's Hill wasn't shared by the players. Paul Langmack said of Chili's Hill, Tommy just makes us go up and down that hill. It leaves me shaking and dehydrated. The last time I was there, I thought I was going to die. Uh, and And that dehydration may have something to do with another of Tommy's coaching methods, uh, as Langmack continues the story. 
I tried to get him to take a barrel of water, but he said, no fucking water. I'm in charge here. There were three young kids watching us. I asked them to get us some water. They ran down the hill and got us two bottles. The players started to fight me for the bottles. Look, I'm all for old school coaching and fire and brimstone, but I don't think endangering the lives of your players is a good idea. <laughs> and Tommy watched all this playing out uh, at the top of the hill. He he drove up the hill and sat there smoking 10 to 12 cigarettes as the players uh, made their way up it. God, it sounds like hard work. Yeah, and... He he had some other tricks up his sleeve by getting the players into a, a, a false sense of security. So Langback said, when we turn up for training and Tom says, you won't need your fucking boots, we know it's the hill. Last week he tricked us. He told us to do two laps of the oval. And Steve George Alice was saying, I think we're staying here. Just when we relaxed and thought it would be a ball work session, Tom said, I'll meet you at the top of the hill. <laughs> but I, I think one of the things exercises like that do is to to bond the team and get them together and there was a lot of spirit in that team throughout the year and I I just wanted to talk a bit about that squad so you had some classy veterans with you know Paul Langmack was still playing good footy Andrew Leeds watching the highlights of that year he was so good like god he's good yeah like a a really underappreciated fullback of the 90s well, like um, I love late Langback career the same as late Jason Smith's career. Mm. But he and Jason Smith are probably the closest things to Cliffy we had. Yeah, and another one who just like bought in and you know built the culture around him. Um, but yeah, a, a real key part of of West's rise that year. But on on top of the veterans, you also had like a decent squad with some promising young talent coming through. You had like Steve George Alice had basically emerged by that point. He'd been around a while. Uh, I, I really love Steve George Alice. He was a really good player, yeah. Um, i trying to think. He's a bit of a utility, right? Yeah, like I, I think I, I like him best at lock. Like he was, yeah. you know, playing halfback a lot in this era, but I, I think you want him, you know, somewhere in the back row to, to use him best. But you had George yeah. Alice, you had the McGuinness brothers emerging, Andrew Willis. Very good player. Remember that field goal like it was yesterday? Um he, he, yeah, a pre Costin Brandon Pearson. Yeah, yeah. Who was there was so much buzz about Brandon Pearson that year. There was a lot of a Siri Lang talk in nineteen ninety six. Seeing that name again in the in the dossier uh, brought back some great memories. I completely forgotten about him. I had too. And, like, um, yeah, I loved him as a kid. And, and it, it's yeah, like, how does that happen? A player just completely disappears from your mind, and then well, going, I'll tell you how it happens. Mate. He plays for the West Coast. <laughs> But yeah, there was so much a Siri Lang talk throughout 1996. But when when we did the Western Suburbs case study a while ago, I mentioned that the the 1996 team that made the semis wasn't that much different to the 1999 team that was is considered one of the worst in rugby league history. And I believe that's true to some extent, but I think the biggest difference is promise. Like in 1996, you had these young guys that you thought may develop into something like you had this core of real talent that was, was bonding together, was playing with great spirit. And you thought, Oh, you know, West could be a force in, in a couple of years. By 1999, there was just no hope of that. But, but would you, um, is there a possibility that all the threats to get on the drink were actually followed through with <laughs> there, there? There's that, but I, th- I think the biggest thing was, and we might discuss this more when we do the 1997 season, but Tommy just gave up on them so quickly in 1997 when they didn't have success and basically gutted the team 
And, you know, he later admitted that was a mistake, which it's a mistake for a number of reasons, not least of which who's coming to replace the players you've cut. Yeah. And, and as it turned out, no one did. And, you know, like, you know, we mentioned Andrew Willis and, and how good he was looking. He was one of the players that got cut. And suddenly this young core has just been decimated. No equivalent talent is coming in. You know, it all falls apart. So that was a, a crucial error that Tommy made. But as I said, it was a great effort to make the semis and, you know, to, to be ahead for 72 minutes and then lose it. You had to feel feel bad for them, but it's probably about right. You know, they, they did well. There was hope for the future. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. But a season that I'm sure Western Suburbs fans would, would think of fondly when they look back on that era. So we might move on to the other eliminated semi-finalists from that first week of the finals, which was your Canberra Raiders and the team that knocked them out was my St. George Dragons. Plenty of feeling in that uh, match, mate. It, it's a game I look back on with real fond, fondness. Like, I, I loved it at the time, and, you know, getting the chance to watch it again was a, a real joy for me. It, it was a really cool match. One, one of my first takeaways of the game was that it, it was a real, like, English Super League-style game. Like, it was just caution to the win, this really enterprising play in the first 15 minutes that would just, like, fall apart. Yeah, a real, really fun game that I'd urge anyone to go back and have a have a watch of. Yeah, so it's on Seagulls Fans YouTube, the the king of the old content. So good that channel. I watched it. I watched it again recently. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but before we get to the game, we should talk about the Raiders' season, which was a poor one by the, their standards, and it, it was a season that never really got going. So from the start, they had issues with no major sponsor and. They played the first 10... I, I couldn't work out the exact week they got the major sponsor, but it was sometime between round 10 and round 14. They had the clean skin yep. green jersey. <laughs> but it was one of the worst sponsor looks of all time as well. Yeah, so the sponsor <laughs> they got was News Classifieds. <laughs> so A, it's a news limited company, which means they actually didn't get a major sponsor. <laughs> and B, just like a terrible logo. like That, that jersey looked awful. But how how does a team that's supposed to be one of the premier flagship teams of Super League um, can't can't get a sponsor? It's amazing. I know, and I, I wish I'd looked into into the milk thing more. Like I don't know whether that was like a late withdrawal or something like that. Uh, but yeah, it it just seems that that team should have been able to get a sponsor so easy. But it but it does highlight maybe the the trouble they'd have in seasons ahead, where they were a force and a, a glamour club by happenstance more than anything else, you know, like it, it wasn't a destination club because not many people wanted to go down and live in Canberra. Mm. But they only basically limped into the finals. They won their last four regular season games to fight their way in the sixth spot. They didn't enter the top eight for the first time that year until round 17. And that four straight was the only time they managed to win three or more games in a row all year. So it was a struggle all season, and there's a few reasons for that that we'll get into. And the biggest one, of course, is an injury to Ricky Stewart. So two games into the season, he did his knee against Parramatta, who, of course, is the same team that happened to him in 1993. There's many wonder why I hate Parramatta. <laughs> and, and so that's always going to make it hard. 
And you could see how everything fell apart in 1993 with him gone. So really they did well to hold it together and make the semis and be up for a good portion of that semifinal against the Dragons. Well, um, you and I have discussed this before, and it's like you made a great point saying like Daly had him on his back and he wasn't able to play his, you know, his, 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 um, to his strengths of, you know, yeah. running holes and stuff because he was controlling more of the game. Like losing Stewart for them was like losing two and a half men. Yeah. And then on top of Stewart, Bradley Clyde breaks his leg against the Dogs in round six. He's gone for the year. Mm. Steve Walters didn't play until round nine. We talked about those... John Lomax and Quentin Pongius suspensions mid-year. So it, it was a real struggle to to get their best team on the park. So much of a struggle that for a time it looked like that Mal Meninga would be making a comeback. Like one of the great rugby league tropes is um, trying to ruin a, a great finish to a career by getting a comeback happening. Like, thank God he didn't come back. Yeah, and it wouldn't have been like a Terry Lamb situation where for at least a, a good... A good while before the season started, it was in his mind that he might have to come back. So the Malmeninga comeback was actually spawned by a squash match uh, where he soundly beat Tim Sheens. And Tim Sheens and Kevin Neal had a look at his form on the squash court and thought, I don't reckon he could still <laughs> handle it. The arbitrary decision-making in rugby league, it's astounding. I find it hilarious that someone as big as Mal's great at squash. Mm. Shows what an athlete the blue. Yeah. Uh, in the end, the comeback was stopped by Super League executives who thought it was inappropriate for a current board member to be playing in the ARL, which I, I <laughs> kind of think they have a point on that. <laughs> so with Meninga not coming back, it was up to the new blood. And they had some su- success in this regard with the emergence of Jason Ferris early in the year, who uh, he at the time looked really exciting, like he was just going to be the next guy after Ricky Stewart. We always talk about the Peter Sterling um, ghost of Peter Sterling at Para, but the, the the Ricky Stewart filling in ghost with him watching, breathing down your neck on the sidelines yeah, yeah. is a, ter- <laughs> a terrible position as well. Trevor Shadell, Steve Stone, yeah. Jason Ferris, all of them. Yeah, and it, it might be no surprise then that Ferris's form didn't last throughout the year and eventually Steve Stone came back and he saw out the year and was the halfback in that semi-final. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there is a, a touch of the next Sterling about the Raiders for the next 10 or 15 years. But one rookie that made a real splash was Ben Kennedy. Ben Kennedy with a full head of hair, uh, but playing as exactly the player that everyone remembers Ben Kennedy. He was so good. Is he the last great Union convert? I Yeah. I yeah. In, in terms of like a, a genuinely great player who had a great rugby league career, it, I, I can't really think of another one. Because it's such a rare thing for a forward to come over and do so well, and God, he was good. Yeah, got better with age too. But again, one of the in in the Rex Mossop Ray Price mold of you, you can't believe he was a Union guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was viewed as a, a sure thing for the Rookie of the Year. That ended up going to Glenn Morrison, who you know he he emerged as well, or, or looked great in the early part of his career, but um. I think history will show that Ben Kennedy, you know, was the better player by some distance. Yeah, I remember him having good, good heat when he was young, though, Morrison. Yeah. Compounding the injuries was a, a loss of form in some players, and Brett Mullins is is the, the key example in that regard, who was out in the press talking about how he wasn't getting enough ball, 
And that was the main reason for his slide from, you know, the highs of 1994 and 1995. But but I think that just makes him look worse in comparison to Tim Brasher, who, while playing in an ordinary Tigers side, regained his mantle of the world's best fullback and, you know, left Mullins for dead. Well, in the decades that, that, that followed this, I mean, fullbacks, you know, became even more instrumental and had to go looking for the ball. So it doesn't make him look even worse now in hindsight. But uh, it, it, did this coincide with his off-field off lifestyle uh, taking a dip? I, I didn't find anything to say that explicitly, but, you know, it, it, it seems that that probably would have been a factor. And and then also, I, I think that the Stewart thing would have would have been a problem as well. You know, suddenly the team's yeah. forced to play in a completely different way and they aren't creating the same opportunities for him. Mm. Having him in the centres was still pretty cool, though. Like, it's, it's, it's not a um, total waste. No, but, but yeah, definitely, you know, we, we've had a million conversations about this, but, you know, we didn't get the Brett Mullins career we thought we were going to get after 1995. <laughs> he may be the most discussed player in the history of the RFA. I think he is. I think he's got it. <laughs> But then on top of the the player injuries and suspensions, the season was also disrupted by this lingering Super League tension. And I think the Raiders, more than any other team, just refused to get on with it. Like Kevin Neal was the chief offender in that regard. And of course, there's the old saying, a fish rots from the head. You can really see it with this. And I I mentioned the the Rothmans medal. There, There was actually another minor furor with, on the Rothmans night, Kevin Neal asking everyone where Ray Hadley was. He said, where is he? If I see him, I'm going to punch his head in. I mean, I'm not a Ray Hadley man, but I think he, he might have a size advantage over Kevin. <laughs> and like comments like that, they're, they're funny. And like, it, you know, as people who don't necessarily like Ray Hadley, you know, you, you kind of want to be on Kevin Neal's side, but it's just so unbecoming from your chief executive. And, and you know, going back to the Texas billionaire, why is a league official like getting in a punch up in the first place? You know? The feeling I get from this series now is just like I actually hate the executives with a passion because the fans don't care about like some CEO and what you know their power broking. No one like mm. the, 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 like their name should be forgotten. Yeah, like and then but we're still talking about them thirty years later because of their egos and posturing and what have you it sucks yeah like it's exactly right it's like the referee like you only hear about them when they've done something wrong you know a, a, a good ceo is doing his job behind the scenes and and you know getting the job done and, and letting the, the that's right um but yeah like kevin neil throughout this series i've you know he, he hasn't covered himself in glory where is he where's that <laughs> and so we'll, we'll get on to the match itself so as I said, a really enjoyable match for me. Just a couple of things I wanted to mention from the Dragon side of things. This ended up being the last game in the career of Ricky Walford, who he'd done, I meant to mention this last week, but he'd done a minor Terry Lamb of himself and decided to go around again in 1996 to help the team out. So in for the rest of the finals, Nick Zisti got the nod over him, and Nick Zisti looked really good in 1996. Um, but, you know, a bit unfortunate that Ricky Walford couldn't be there for the rest of the finals. Ricky Walford, like, such an ultimate club man. Yeah. Um, but I was so impressed by Zisti's form yeah. in this game in yeah. particular. It, it was a real um, 
a real power winner. He was, he was. And Adrian Brunker on the other side. Like, we had a back three of Dean Raper, Nick Zisti, and Adrian Brunker, which you, you can kind of, like, play up for laughs now, like, that this was our back three in the grand final. But all of them were, like, doing such a great job. Like, throughout these finals, like, the Dragons, like, were clearly the, the second best team of the competition. Like, it, it, it's no surprise that they made the grand final when you look at how they played. Well, for, for a guy who had completely forgotten Dean Raper until we discussed the 96 season, seeing his tackle on David Ferner, mm. which I believe saved them the game, yeah. um, the guy was half his size. He's such a slight um, frame, young Dean Raper. And somehow he stops uh, Ferner barnstorming at the line and just easily stops Yeah, him. yeah. And I think the Raiders, we, we mentioned it before, but they miss the presence of Stewart, particularly in the the way Laurie Daly played. Like I, th- I thought he had a, a, not a bad game, but, but not a very good game. Like he was caught in this, like trying to play his natural game, but also taking on organizational duties. And, you know, late in the game, like they were attacking the line. He puts in like a, a pretty poor kick that was, you know, was their last real chance to, to win the game. And you just think like it was on to just run it and, and play like Laurie Daly should be playing. Yeah, but who knows what injuries he was carrying? Yeah, yeah, to, true. Probably, probably a ton. I didn't realize how much they missed Stewart's kicking, and the commentators, commentators kept harping on it, uh, like he was such a you know heads and shoulders above his understudy and most other yeah. kickers in the competition. So you're already twenty meters behind most. Exactly. Sets. Yeah, yeah. So you're starting at a different disadvantage every time you play. But even though he was not like, you know, playing as the best version of Laurie Daly. We should say that, you know, he still won the Daly M 5-8th of the year. He was a front runner in the Rothmans and won, won back a lot of admirers because of the way he played throughout 1996. So you, you can't fault the heart and the commitment. It was just, he, he wasn't able to play the, the game he should have been playing. Yeah, Clyde and Stewart's too big a hurdle to jump. Yeah. But onto the Dragons, and for me, the, the big story of this game was the try by Wayne Bartram in, in the first half, which I, I think it was the try of the year. One of my all-time favorite footballing memories, and it, it was an amazing try from a player who was at like in incredible form throughout these finals. i tell you what, um, do yourself a favor, Molly Meldrum, go to the Seagulls fan YouTube um, of this semi and go to at uh, 19 Minutes, and that's where the Bartram try is. If you don't want, don't want to watch the whole game, it's a oh, classic try. And then he goes on to kick the the winning goal from the sideline. And just, he was so good in that final series. Like his name, like not, not that his name's a joke, but I think people remember him more for, you know, the penalty goal in the origin and the fact that he was, you know, playing hooker for Queensland. That seems to be his enduring legacy. But, he was like, I, I think in the final series, he was looking like the best forward in the world. Like he was like just putting blokes through holes left and right. This try, which, yeah, as I said, words can't do it justice. Um, individual try that just turned the game. And yeah, Wayne Bartram was a, a super player in this series. Yeah, career best form. And this is more evidence of the power of Mark Coyne because he was off contract in the lead up to everything that was happening with Rod Reddy and David Waite. And he said, I actually signed a three-year contract with the club right in the middle of all that uncertainty. Mark Coyne convinced me it was the way to go. 
And I just love that. Like players are leaving every week. The coach is out. You've got the league's club boss saying that the, the club's going to be dead in two years. But all it takes is Mark Coyne to, to get into here and say, I, I reckon we're on a good wicket here. You should re-sign. I, I mean, that's pretty cool. But I don't think it's that hard to uh, sway the opinion of a young rugby league player. Yeah. <laughs> well, Coyne said it was sweet. So three years. <laughs> But more than Bartram, I, th- I think what the game is remembered for is the mouse trap. So uh, this play again, again, I think this was uh, this was at about the seventieth minute mark. If, if you don't want to watch the whole game, but basically it was a play where Nathan Brown went into dummy half and like faked get picking the ball up. Anthony Mundine came in and then um, they were off, and you know they spread it right. Mark Bell scores in the corner. Now. I don't understand the actual technicalities of the rules. Do do you understand it? Yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll explain it to you and the listeners because technically it was an illegal play. And in commentary, this was Sterlow's reaction to the try. Is the mousetrap legal? I would have thought the attacking side have got to have their players back. They've got two two dummy halves on this occasion. I don't want to put cold water on the try because it was a well-worked move, but he's got no right to be there. And the reason for that is that basically... Under the rules, offside works two ways. So you've got the the play the ball, and so you've got the tackled player, the dummy half, the markers in the defence. They're allowed to be in the play the ball area. The defence has to be back 10 metres, but the rest of the attacking team has to be back as well. So that's why it's technically an illegal play. I never even knew about that rule. Well, the reason you didn't know about it was that it was a rule that hadn't been enforced for about 15 years. So Mick Stone in the aftermath said, quite simply, we were told 15 years ago not to enforce the five-metre offside rule in attack. You can't enforce it, otherwise there'd be a penalty every time a team takes the ball up. The rule shouldn't be in the book. It should be discarded. This is another uh, example of like the tinkering gone wrong because if you're going to tinker, make it official. See, it, it raised a, a lot of interesting points. And I, I think... The discourse at the time highlighted the fact that it's easy to say that, but that doesn't work in reality. And Stone went on to say, there are referees who know the rule book inside out and backwards who are not good referees. I don't take it as far as Don Ferner, who says that the rule book is a pretty good guide and then you learn to ref after that. But I know what he means. As soon as you start going too far to the gust side of things, you know, it's all feel, that's not try, you know, that sort of thing, then it gets out of control. But um, I think the try was fine. I think the I think if if you're taking the mousetrap out of the game, you're, you're taking out a big spectacle. Yeah, well, it's I I can see both sides, but I can I can see where you're coming from. That if you're not going to enforce it, take it out of the rule book. That makes sense. But like in reality, that probably in a set of six tackles, a ref could blow a penalty four times out of six. You know, like it, it's just you have to keep the spectacle in mind. And and I think like as botched as rule changes have been over the years, I think this is always kind of, you know, at the forefront of those changes, trying to make a balance between like fair play and the rules and the entertainment product of the game. Well, the only thing I was concerned about is whether he was impeding players in the defensive line, which he wasn't. So I was fine with it. But um, And then I, I, I realised there was a whole other issue behind it, the attacking side. But... Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why people are complaining that hard about it. To be honest, yeah, and and really, outside of Canberra, who you know, Laurie Daly chased Kelvin Jeffs into the tunnel after the match to to continue arguing about it. Tim Sheen's also thought it was 
it, it should have been called a penalty. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think by and large, like most people just accepted the play because it was a cool thing that happened. And, and yeah, it's not like Canberra were impeded. And it's funny because I, I asked on Twitter if, if it had officially been outlawed because I couldn't get, uh, I, I couldn't find that out. And then was flooded with responses of people saying, no, it, it hasn't been outlawed. Uh, and in fact, there was, you know, there was one a few months ago, or there was one in England last year, you know, which I, I can't really remember many of the instance, many instances of a mousetrap after this semi-final series. It's a, it's a great move. It's a great board game. It's, it's, a, it's <laughs> it needs to be in the, it needs to be in rugby league. But let me ask you this. Is there a more referee name than Kelvin Jeffs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He was born a referee. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think one of the reasons you don't see it much today is probably the potential for obstruction penalties, as you mentioned. Like, you know, there's a good chance that, you know, it could be interpreted as a defending player, you know, not having an opportunity or, you know, an obstruction occurring, especially way, especially the way that rule is enforced now in comparison to 1996. So mm-hmm. I, I think the, the risk-reward ratio is in the direction of a mousetrap you know, not being worth it most of the time. A mousetrap should be double the points for a try. <laughs> um, but we'll move on to Manly versus versus Ace, which was an elimination final. So I, I don't want to talk about it too much other than t- to say it wasn't the greatest game for Manly. They won 16 to 14 against a Roosters side who were, were limping to the finish line, as we're about to discuss. But this was consistent with a late season drop in form. Um, of Manly they you know lost a couple of games they should have won late in the regular season and it was looking like a repeat of 1995 where they basically weren't the same dominant team heading into the finals but then of course they went on to reverse that in the preliminary final and the grand final but there were signs there that maybe Manly were, were beatable because you know they hadn't put the Roosters away like they might have but in giving our little uh, Roosters season review I've got to bring up a fourth errata note and this relates to something you said uh, last week when you said, remember you said Phil Gould told Freddie that he should only go to the Dogs and the Roosters. In mm. fact, the the truth of that line, what Phil Gould says, was the Dogs, Manly and the Broncos. And right. at the time, I, I didn't think it was worth correcting you as, you know, we've got the original quote on record and I didn't think it was that important. But as I've thought about it, it actually is quite significant because it's a credit to the Roosters that they managed to become the destination club and if you're a player of a certain stature like they're one of the you know the two to three clubs that you'll go to and and they've achieved that and maintained that for for 20 years after spending about the same amount of time as a transit lounge that no one ever thought of yeah and is that because the um administration aren't trying to get any punch-ups with radio hosts and yeah yeah well, well then that that's exactly the thing so nick politis comes in in 1993 by that time ron jones had been there a long time at the club and, you know, he had some success, wasn't a bad administrator, but it it was a bit long in the tooth and it happens to the best of them that, you know, the the game passes them by. So Politis comes in along with Bernie Gurr. The two of them make some big changes, starting with the Leagues Club, of course, which you can can talk about the morals of it, but you got to get your Leagues Club right if you want to get the football club right. And then went on to to take the, the team in a new direction. And the start of that was to rename the team Sydney City from the eastern suburbs, which made sense for the time as having City in their name, giving them that CD 
CBD presence and making them like the Sydney team, which I, I still like. I still would prefer they be called Eastern Suburbs, but I don't have a huge problem with it. Um, my big problem with what they did in Sydney City was changing their logo to that Harbour Bridge and um, oh, God. <laughs> the, the the rooster in a football jersey running with the ball, like the worst <laughs> logo in rugby league <laughs> yeah. history. It reminded me of one of those um, Martin the Martian era, Mighty Ducks era cartoon logos. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So at at the time, this is this is actually from the the Sydney Roosters website. They they give a good history of the club, and it said the former club badge was deemed a pathetic stuffed chook and replaced with a more aggressive looking rooster. Which I, I think this is the the most egregious example of of what I call the the logos with attitude era. You had <laughs> it really was. That Parramatta had that stupid looking eel. The, the Steelers, like the, the best logo in football, they changed their logo. And in all cases, they, they just got it spectacularly wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit difficult though. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear if, you, if your animal's the rooster. <laughs> but but I think that the, the rooster's logo they had up to that point was awesome. Like I think that's yeah, one of the best cool, logos. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think they're bringing it back for 2022, if if I if I remember correctly from what I've read. But I I, I think it's brilliant and a major mistake. Well, I mean, um, but but as a uh, 1980s WWF fan, as a kid, the the Red Rooster gimmick, uh, which pretty much signified the down the downward spiral of the WWF, <laughs> always um, makes me sick. So that's probably why I hate the Roosters like that. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about then, but but I know that quite a few of our listeners do. So uh, <laughs> I'll leave them to digest it and move on. So beyond the logo, the, the other big move was Gus. So it, it was viewed that they couldn't take the next step without a new coach. So at the time, Mark Murray was the coach. Jack Gibson was there as football director. And... This is more evidence of the game passing Gibson by. So Murray and Gibson believe that players shouldn't be overburdened by training too much, and they only wanted players who were committed enough to train on their own time. So they only trained as a group three times a week, which... That's insane. Yeah, yeah. And it it, it was, you know, it, it wasn't until Super League that we got full, full-time professionalism. But at the same time, this was out of step with how rugby league was at the time. So what? Um, so they, they come and do laps on a Monday, a bit of ball work on a Wednesday, and um, a couple of push-ups on Friday. Yeah, yeah, play. exactly. Yeah, and then on top of the that lax training and the you know unprofessional nature of the way the club was being run, they had the transit lounge vibe, and they weren't able to attract the big name players. So it was viewed that Gus could bring those big names, which you know he certainly did. And crucial to getting Gus in was Wayne Beavis, who met with Nick Politis and James Packer, who'd been installed as a director, saying that, you know, players who were tossing up between new clubs were going to be heavily influenced by the coach and someone like Mark Murray wasn't going to have the same power as Bob Fulton or Phil Gould. So we, we kind of underestimate that aspect of it, the player agents. Like Wayne Beavis is a kingmaker of kingmakers. I mean, he's kind of gone off the boil last couple of decades because he's old and everything. He just keeps yeah. his old um, old clients. But back then, he was the, yeah the man of the man of the hour. Yeah. So 
Phil Gould comes in, instantly like institutes a minor clean out, so drops Craig Salvatore and Nigel Gaffey as well. They both get moved on. Rod Silver goes, Jeff Orford's forced out. And Gould came in and was basically alarmed by the complacency of the senior players. So axing them was the first step in moving the club in a new direction. It's a seismic change that Gus brought in. You can't deny it. Yeah. So Gus coming was phase one, but 1995 was going to be a bridging year. So they finished ninth for that year, and it was about building up the talent. So for 1996, they targeted three players. In an article in Inside Sport profiling Gus and the Roosters, those three players were identified as a goal kicker, a halfback, and a champion. So they put a list together, and the goal kicker ended up being Ivan Cleary, the halfback was John Simon, and Brad Fittler was, of course, the champion. How many champions are available, do you think, at any one time? Six? It's Yeah. Because in that article, it was talking about how Fittler was the key piece. And Bernie Gurr said, every great club's had a champion, and no team's ever won a competition without one. And I, I started to go down the um, the process of looking at every premier and weighing up whether they had a champion and in the end it was it was just too hard to decide what a champion was but I I think ultimately a champion is someone that you know there's no argument about so Brad Fittler certainly clears that bar quite easily and you're right Mm. there aren't many players at any one time that you could say that about so without Gus there's no Freddie you can can take that to the bank yeah exactly so it, it kind of it took Politis coming in but then it took Politis getting Gus and it took Gus getting Freddie. But those three moves basically paved the way for the Roosters as we've known them for the last 20 years. Incredible. And so 1995 was like phase one in terms of getting players. So for that year, they got Andrew Walker, Peter Clark, um, Peter Jorgensen and Darren Junee, who the, the latter two, one of my favorite wing combinations, it was so good in 1996. Very, very Eastern Suburbs looking. <laughs> well, so yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and Union converts as well. I mean, I remember loving Jorgo as well as a kid. Yeah. Doing the aeroplane. The aeroplane, yeah. Like when Jared, looking, when Hayne came along, I was like, that's that's the old June A. Jorgensen move. <laughs> so that was 1995. In 1996, on top of Fittler, Cleary, and John Simon, they also got uh, Matt Singh, Paul Dunn, and Tim Madison. So really shoring up the team. And... It was kind of a sensible build-up in contrast to Parramatta's, you know, huge 1996 spree. Matt's thing was such a value buy for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a just a great uh, contributor. And, and he's also an example of the fact that it's a bit unfair to say they were, you know, were buying the comp, you know, which is a ridiculous claim to make at any time. But like the fact is, like Fitler and Singh were ARL refugees. John Simon and and Ivan Cleary were the only like established players that were were poached. Like the rest were, you know, either unwanted at their clubs, were union converts. So it was just it was smart buying. But like Simon and Cleary weren't in the top five in their position either. Like like they were they were respected players, but they weren't. You know, oh my god, they're they're buying all the best players. Yeah, exactly. So it was you know maybe the best players available, and then you know Brad Fittler on top of that. But the result of this buying was that they started the season in sensational form, won their 
first 10 rounds before losing to the Dragons in round 11. So it ended up being their best start since 1931. I remember watching Walker um, in this era and his um, his kicking was better than Stewart's by a mile. I loved Andrew Walker and I we're going to talk about him a lot more in 1997 because I love uh, Walker in 1997 and in particular the way Gus used him. And I, I think that is... Uh, an underrated evolution of the fullback position, um, Andrew Walker being installed there in 1997. But yeah, like Andrew Walker made such a difference. Great kicking game. And I, I wish he stayed. Like, I, I think, you know, obviously he had his demons over the course of his career, but I, I really wish he stayed in league. I'm beginning to really resent demons. Yeah. You know, just ruining, ruining a lot of uh, good teams and bands and... yeah. Uh, but what also ruins good teams is injuries, and the Roosters fell victim to this later in the year. So they started the first half of the season ten and one. The second half they went five and five with a draw, and then out in straight sets in the semi-finals. So a season of promise ended badly, and they were basically done by the time they got to week two. So they put up a strong fight against Manly, but had nothing left for the Dragons. They had Todd Lowry and Terry Hermanson break the same arm in the same game. I remember that. Yeah, God. So they lost their starting props, went into the semifinals with uh, James Smith and Julian Troy, uh, neither player I I really have any memory of. So it it was always going to be tough for them to to progress in the finals. A couple of of Kiwi hard nuts there as well. Yeah, yeah. Larry and Hermanson. We we were just overflowing with uh, hard Kiwi forwards (laughs) in that era. Uh, but on on top of that, Freddie did his groin. That killed any chance they had of making a dent in the finals. So Freddie said it was the worst injury he's had apart from uh, damage to his shoulder uh, in the later years at the Roosters. But he did it early in the season and you know carried on throughout the year. But by the time he got to the Dragons, um, he was finished. So he snapped it in, in a you know regulation tackle early in the second half. He was out for the rest of the game and, you know, the Dragons dominated and the Roosters were out. Let me ask you this. Have groin injuries uh, subsided since the 90s? It seems like we used to have groins all the time in the 90s. Well, that, that's one for NRL physio, but yeah, you, you, you don't hear about that as often as you did used to. I feel like groins were the like the pecs of the 2010s mm, Yeah, back then. Yeah, that, that's worth some investigating. But we might move on from the Roosters to the other losing semi-finalists, the, the Brisbane Broncos, who lost to Cronulla. So after finishing second, they were out in straight sets. And this was actually their fifth semi-final loss in a row. So round one of 1994 was their last semi-final win. And this led to a, a clean-out at the end of the year, or a mini-clean-out, with players like Paul Hoff and Chris Johns retiring Alan Can, Willie Kahn, Kerrod Walters all being moved on. And and I think this goes back to the idea of complacency. You know, we talk about Phil Gould's moving Craig Salvatore on at the Roosters. So beyond the physical aging of players, there's also the issue of players becoming furniture. Yeah. You know, and they get to that point of their lives, they've got families coming in and mm. football's not the not the be all and end all. Yeah, and you think about like any job you've had if you work in a place with an older entrenched workplace, you know, it can be hard to get buy in for new ideas and you know, changes to a routine can often be met with resistance. So it's no surprise that you'd see the same thing happening within the environment of a football team. 
That corporate speak just made me shudder, by the way. <laughs> but you know what I mean. You're not getting buy-in for this uh, <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but the Broncos trainer is on my side, Kelvin Giles. So he said that he left the club at the end of 1996, not because of any fallout with management, but just he was disillusioned by the attitude of the players. He said, I left because of my disappointment in the players. We had the players, we had the resources, and we had the system, but the players didn't deal with fame very well. It was very sad. Is he having to go at Alfie and the Walters boys there or, or the ones that moved on? I, I, th- I don't know if he's talking about any individual in particular. I think it's just an aspect of the culture. And that is what I was trying to get at with my corporate speak, that when complacency sets in, it, it can be hard to get new ideas and necessary changes over the line. That's an excellent blue skying of ideas there, mate. <laughs> I, I, like guys like Kevin and Alfie are always joking around and, you know, they're so good they don't really have to train that hard. I don't, I don't know if they're the, the great leaders of the uh, Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Guys. Yeah, well, yeah that, that's, that's a good point that, like, you need those leaders to step up when your best players are more, more laconic and, you know... Laissez-faire. Laissez-faire, yeah, more corporate speak there. So I'm not the only one. <laughs> you've, got, you've got some buy-in from, from this side on the corporate speak. But, but um, really, like, this corp- Cooper Conk, um, as, as annoying as he is, you know, as Mr. Winner, um, you, like, it's such a valuable thing to have just a, a guy that leads by yeah. example and yeah. accountability and all the rest of that rubbish. Yeah. So really, it, it's no coincidence that they won the comp the following year after making these changes. I mean, you could argue that Lockyer starting to peak and Talis arriving was maybe a more significant factor, but but I think there is something to it, to my argument. Well, well Talis is, is the guy, isn't he? He's the guy that's going to yeah, 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 um, yeah. lead. Remember that Remember that episode we discussed, the uh, the army training thing where he, where he ran off on his own like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so after after three years of semi-final failure, it was clear something had to be done. And as we'll discuss when we get to 1997, the, the Broncos certainly did that. So we'll move on to week three and and turn to the Sharks. And I, I, I think this may be the most likable Sharks team in, in the history of that club. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I mean, I was a big ET man in that era, as, as a lot of people were. But I really like seeing a young Paul Green when he was still really quick scoring from the from the scrums and stuff like that. That was a cool Paul Green era. And the, the combination between him and Mitch Healy was fantastic. I, I loved that halves combo. And I, yeah, I think cool. we had a Hall of Fame discussion where you poured water on my, on my undying affection for, for Mitch Healy. But I think it's it's the combination between the two of them that, that really sold me. Like um, they were playing like sensational football for, for that year and, you know, the years either side of it. Yeah, true. He was a good player, Michili, no doubt. I tell you what I noticed in these games in the semis, though, was um, Paul Donaghy, who I hadn't thought about for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good, good hard-running centre. And it's funny because, like, the, there's a lot of flash in that team, and then there's also these kind of, like, old-school guys. Like, I put Donaghy in that class, and then Les Davidson in particular. Who, like, <laughs> a couple of you are still playing. Yeah, I know. And even though, like, my memories of Les Davidson... Uh, his Cronulla years, like, you know, I was a bit too young for his South years, but it still looks weird seeing him in a Sharks jersey. Like, he he just looks like such an 80s South player that seeing him in the, <laughs> in the you know, Reebok, um, you know, Sharks jersey, it, it just looks <laughs> weird. It certainly does. 
But yeah, I, I really like that Sharks team. And also watching the, the Sea Eagles fan season review, I was reminded how often in that era you'd be watching the Sunday night news and seeing the grainy footage of Shark Park from the Saturday night. It seemed like <laughs> every time they played, it was like poorly lit on a Saturday night, usually raining. A game one, you know, like 12 8 by the Sharks. <laughs> There were some really like desperate sharks eras, wasn't there? Like yeah. the Saturday Night Shark Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it was a a season of much promise for the Sharks, and and they were really building to something. So their, their nineties record was tenth, tenth, thirteenth, tenth, seventh in ninety four, fourth in nineteen ninety five, then fifth in nineteen ninety six, and it kind of like set them up for that you know run in the late nineties, you know. Grand final in 1997 and minor premiers in 1999. But they, they yeah. had the, the team. They had the coach, John Lang. We're going to be talking a lot more about the Sharks in our 1997 season recap, but love John Lang. Me too. And it's, it's taken me, um, uh, Martin Lang follows us on Twitter and we see him interacting online all the time. The guy's a real intellect. Yeah. Which obviously John Lang must be as well. Yeah, yeah. But both of them look like, look like old school, like, you know, league guys, you wouldn't think that. So uh, I always thought he was just an old hard nut John Lang, but he's you know really good coach. Yeah, great rugby league brain. But the, the player we haven't talked about was is David Peachy, who you know had arrived as a star at that point, had a carriage esque game in that Manly semi final, <laughs> where he but, but that drop pass when he had the white line wide open. You'd like to have that one over. Oh, and the the two tries he let in late in the game. One of them, he returned the ball with this one-handed carry that was just the most ridiculous <laughs> carry I've ever seen watching football. Like you listeners go if you haven't watched this game or haven't watched it in a while, go back and look at just after halftime, Peachy returns a kick and and just look at the way he is carrying the ball. And of course, one-handed as soon as the defense makes contact with him, it flies out of his hand. Menzies picks it up and scores under the post untouched to make it 12 nil and, you know, manlier away. And then. But, yeah, but that was bad. But, like, don't worry because he learned his lesson and never did it again for the rest of his career. Yeah, <laughs> never did it. Made an, an equally bad mistake 15 minutes later and, you know, cost them the match. And as much as I, I thought Peachy had so much talent. But it was this part of his game that I always found so frustrating and, and stopped me from liking him as much as I'd usually like a player with that attacking flash. Like, it was just the, the dumbness for no reason. Like, what was the best thing that could have happened by holding the ball one-handed by the point and running into the defensive line, you know? <laughs> what? It, <laughs> I mean, it's just gratuitous, isn't it? You know, what, what is the best thing that could happen by running over the try line and... You know, trying to touch every blade of grass next to the dead ball line before putting the ball line, putting the ball down. I have thought about this quite a bit. I think we had a, um, I think we had a whole phone discussion about him and everything. But I used to talk about with about my friends about him as well because everyone loves his his flash and his speed and his grace and everything. But I think it wasn't as bad as it looked. Like the when it, when he had an error, it looked terrible because it was so flashy. 
but he, he didn't make that many errors more than the average fullback. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, it's just it looked so bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good point. Like he did. Yeah, he he wasn't an error machine, but just he he made the errors count. <laughs> the point of the football. I'm <laughs> so in in the end, it was a, a pretty easy win for Manly. A, a sad postscript to that peachy game with John Hopewadi like. You know, being John Hopewadi, going up, you know, rubbing his head, being a dickhead, and oh god, that used to annoy me. Yeah, and if Terry Hill does that, he's man of the year. So. Yeah, but the but the thing about it is, Terry Hill like wouldn't really make you know those kinds of mistakes, whereas John Hopewadi is just as likely as to do something. Right. You know, like. <laughs> But I mean, like it is a bad look, right? But I mean, don't feel bad for Peachy. To the best of my knowledge, he's never inserted his finger in another player's <laughs> rectum. So it's okay. But so Manly, even though they weren't really troubled by the Sharks during the semi-final, they had some issues heading into the grand final with Jeff Tuvey fracturing his eye socket and looking very worse for wear on the sideline, and then also Matthew Ridge getting knocked out and. In his book, his account of this incident, it's it's quite chilling reading it in light of what we know now. But yeah, he was knocked out for a, about twenty minutes in the dressing room. Had no idea where he was. His wife was there, and you know he was not with it for for the duration of that time. So in his book, he said it was ugly, man, because I remember lying in my back in the changing room, and it was like I woke up and shit. There was Sally there. I must have been asking for Sally, but I don't remember asking for her because she never comes down. You know, it's not her style. So I must have asked for her when I, when I first got into the changing room. Then I just sort of woke up and thought, man, this is weird. Everyone's looking at me. I didn't know how I got there or anything like that. Bloody hell. Mm. His delivery is just, it's just the best. It, it's like, I, you know, I, I don't need to say how good this book is for the thousandth time, but the voice, like, I, I just, I cannot get over the voice of Matthew yeah. Ridge in, in this book. It, it's like... Anyway, yeah, <laughs> it's not the last time we're going to talk about that book in this episode or in this series. So we'll move on to the other semi-final, which was St. George versus North at the Sydney Football Stadium. I was there, a, a great day as a Dragons fan, An- another sad occasion for Norths fans who, in looking at their season review, which I- I'm not going to be expansive about because I-, I feel we've covered the North story quite a bit in the 90s. But it, it just, like, reading the, the articles in the lead-up, it just struck me how many nobody's going to kick Norths around anymore articles that were written in the 90s. <laughs> I, I feel like every Norths article written in this decade, you know, has a passage where it'll be like, they say Norths are the lovable losers, perennial cellar dwellers, the easy beats, an absolute joke of a club. Well, nobody's laughing now. <laughs> If we're being fair, Vincum, um, rugby league journalists um, were a bit complacent for the oh, last yeah. 108 years. <laughs> yeah, it's so true, isn't it? But um, w- one interesting thing in, in my research, so th- this year the, the reason that no one was going to kick Norths around anymore was that Ray Beattie had made it to the ARL board replacing Peter Moore. And this was a sign that these... Easy Beats were, were now taken seriously and, and they're in the inner circle. And in the course of that, they talked about Ray Beatty and I found out that he was actually the executive producer of Young Einstein. What? Yeah. Fair income. Good Newcastle boy, are you serious? Yeah, that, that, that blew my mind. 
And and thanks to Ray Beatty for, for one of my favourite movies as a child. <laughs> what was his other one he was in? Isn't another one? Oh, Reckless Kelly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> bit of a one hit wonder in the end, but but what a hit. Um but on to the match itself and I don't know, it, it's hard to get away with not calling this a choke job by Norths. Like the Dragons like played so much better, but just when you look at the two two teams, you're like, how could they put up a f- performance like this? Yeah, it's just sad, man. But it was a game that was, you know, reasonably close in the first half. And then suddenly, half time, the Dragons stay in the sheds and the Harlem Globetrotters came out. Like, they were so good in the second half. Bartram, again, magnificent, uh, put in this perfect pass to Mundane, who, like, hits this hole, runs through. He's got six Norths blokes, like, surrounding him but he just runs straight through untouched under the post and there was stuff like this going on throughout the half it was like if you're a Dragons fan and you haven't watched this match um please go and do so but Saints attack was so good like you know Goldthorpe was killing it Nathan Brown was getting in on the act I've got to say like I remember like loving Goldthorpe as a a kid right he's a little small guy and like he was a good, good half and everything but he, he sort of has an old old style of play. Like he's he's in the dinner suit a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very um, very slow moving and deliberate. But he's you know yeah. I don't know. There's something about him. It just it, it felt really old style. I, I, I think I think that's a really good point. Um, I I did love Goldthorpe as well, but I I, I think yeah, he he was definitely like somewhat of a throwback. But he was a key reason for the dragons going on with it. And this was a. It, it's easy to look back because. I've mentioned it before, but the 1996 isn't high in my pain rankings in terms of losing grand finals. Because when I think back of that season, it just seems Manly were the best team and we weren't going to win it. But watching these semifinals again in preparation for this, I started to believe all over again. And <laughs> like it, it's easy to see why Dragons fans hold this season you know, so dearly and also at the time thought that they were a real chance because the spirit was incredible. Like if you look at full time of this game, the Dragons, you know, the Hooter goes, they like basically run to the other end of the field to salute the the Dragon army in the stands. And, you know, there was just so much spirit. You could really feel it. The way you just said um, pain rankings as a St. George fan, like it was nothing, it's hilarious. <laughs> Gonna rank the, like, the, the top 15 painful. I, I, I could do that. I'll save it for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> the pain rankings. Like they were the most exciting team through the finals, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. And it made for a really compelling grand final. So let's get to that occasion. So, grand final week. All the pre-match buzz was on Manly winning. And the biggest reason for that is something that I inexplicably put in my notes for this week when really it should have been in last week's notes. But the thing about Manly that was so impressive in 1996 was their defense. It was like the elite of the elite. So conceded 8.68 points a game, which like crazy is unbelievable. So they're the last team to concede less than 10 points a game for the season. And I just thought I'd go back through rugby league history and look at how often that happened. So South in 1989 were the last team before Manly to do that. The Dogs of War in 1984 were under 10. Parramatta in 1982 were under 10. The Roosters in 77, 75 and 74 
the Dragons in 73, the Roosters in 67. And then it takes you to the Dragons era where, you know, they did that eight of the 11 premierships, they did it. But they were kind of reversing a trend where Newtown did it in 1955 and also 1943, but no other years in that era was it done. But then if you go back before that, basically from 1908 to 1940, it was just the standard that, you know, the best defensive team would concede less than 10. So 1934 was the only year in that period where that didn't happen. But it's interesting that no one since Manly have done it. It doesn't really seem likely that we're going to see it again anytime soon. It feels impossible, yeah. Yeah. So in most seasons of the NRL era, it's somewhere between 11 and 15. Then you've got a couple of outlier seasons like Parramatta, in 2005, conceded 19 points a game, and that was the best defense of that year. So that's a little wrinkle that would probably bear looking into a bit more. Well, the one that surprised me was South 89. I thought, from memory, you know, Phil Blake and yeah, yeah, even they're an attacking team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was surprised by that as well. But in 1996, there was a lot of talk about Manly being the best defensive team of all time. And and I think like there's a really strong case that that's true. You had club legend Roy Ball coming out and saying, the defense of this team's outstanding. I've seen them all over the years, and we've never had a better defensive team than this one. Which, just a little side note, one of the like really cool things about doing this series is like having all these old timers like come into the narrative. Like yeah, you know, in some cases, blokes who have been dead for twenty years, but like are still like you know present in the game at this point, and you're getting all these great quotes from these old guys. So cool. Yeah. Case in point: Harry Bath talking about Manly's defence and saying that Saints won a string of premierships based on exactly what Manly are doing, and it won't be easy for them to beat Manly uh, in this game. You know, and he he said the key was to deepen their attacking line and have runners coming from behind the ball carriers. And he said, it's what we used to do with Chang, having coming up from behind, which is a great strategy, but, you know, all respect to Dean Raper. Uh, it's, <laughs> you'd probably give Chang a slight points advantage in, in, in that one. Um, but look at their, their side. They had the best defensive halfback, even though he's like mm. tiny. Yeah, great defensive hooker, Sidaris, and these centers that were just axes. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, so good. Yeah, and it was going to be especially hard for the Dragons because they had scored one try against Manly since 1994. <laughs> God. So in four matches between 1994 and 1996, this includes the grand final, uh, Manly went 111 to 16 against the Dragons. 61 of those, of course, coming uh, in one game on a, on a sad afternoon in 1994. But um, I, I had to mention that because I knew if I didn't, I'd be flooded with Manly fans doing it for me. So I got in first. <laughs> Shout out to Mr. Rod Quinn. <laughs> uh, but Manly were also carrying the shadow of 1995 and the way it fell apart in that game. So there was that extra thing to play for and that extra level of motivation and commitment. And I think that was always going to make it really hard for the Dragons to overcome. Something working against their favour was speculation about whether Matthew Ridge would be fit to play. Who You know, you can't have a grand final without a race against the clock injury battle or a judiciary controversy or both. But this actually caused some controversy during the week with 
one doctor coming out and saying that there's a risk that, you know, a, a catastrophic injury if he played, you know, with the concussion. And this led to a, a back and forth about whether he could play, you know, Manly coming out, of course, and saying that he's fine and he's been cleared from our medical staff. Bozo saying that, you know, it's some doctor <laughs> that just wants to get his name in the paper. <laughs> Well, actually, that was their medical staff saying that, Bozo. <laughs> He's fine to play. Yeah. And, of course, I don't think it will be news for anyone listening to this, but, of course, he did go on to play in the grand final and played a substantial role, which we'll get to. But Well, let's talk sliding doors. Um, have we got the rights from James Hooper to use that <laughs> um, inappropriately? Or <laughs> If he doesn't play, God, it's St. George room with a big chance. Yeah, yeah. That's a big one. Jason Stevens got injured in that Canberra game. He was out for the semis. That would have helped the Dragons. Of course, we could have used one G Talis there. So there are a couple of things that could have happened for us to uh, for the Dragons. Go back to neutrality. But um, yeah, there are a few sliding doors in play in this season. But I talked about the great spirit among the club and the Dragons community. David Waite brought so much of that. And from the start, he really bought into the culture and the history of the club. I love this quote uh, in the lead up to the grand final. Saints represent everything that's good about rugby league. We're a traditional club playing a good brand of football. And that basically tells the story. But it also meant that ultimately, you know, on some level, they were kind of there for the ride. And it was always going to be hard for them to come against this, you know, dominant force. Well, if anybody can penetrate that defensive unit, it's guys like Mundine, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the way they played in the semis, like they had the attacking flair to do it, but, you know, we're up against the team that they scored one try against in three years. So it was a tough ask, but we'll get to the day itself and not much to talk about in terms of the entertainment, except for the fact that they went with a theme, 40 years of television, which it like... (laughs) Just sums up the just the naff entertainment and the like. They'd already had like Tina playing a few years before. They'd had bands playing in the past, but they always seem to keep coming back to the well of you know these elaborate, you know, stagey kind of productions that appeal to like basically no, no rugby league fans. The rugby league entertainment, its essence is like Channel Nine, like the midday show or um twenty to one or yeah, just like these shitty, boring phoned in premises you know <laughs> like, and, and like yeah it's a premise based on the idea that rugby league fans give a shit about channel nine and it's like no yeah. we, we give a shit about watching football and you know that's why we're watching channel nine it's not because you know like graham kennedy was there in 1956 and there's this <laughs> you know rich tradition of great australian entertainment you know it's we just want to watch football i was going to give the grand final i missed but colin freels was going to be there so. <laughs> The grand final on delay after an all-new water outs. <laughs> but moving on from the entertainment, one of the themes of this episode has been an air of inevitability about Manly winning. And that was certainly felt within the team and within Matthew Ridge in particular. So he took the step of making a, a costume change for the day that I'll let him tell the story. On this day, September 29, 1996, I'll wear a tie. I'll wear my grand final tie. I'll wear a pair of well-polished shoes. I'll wear proper press manly trousers, a white shirt, a manly blazer. I have a shave. 
At first it seems like a whim. Ha, I'll wear a tie today, do something different. Soon I realize it's more than that. It's a way of expressing my certainty that this is going to be a special day for us. It's going to be a blazer and tie day, which sets up his confidence. Uh, It led to uh, a few G-ups in the sheds. He goes on and says, Everyone else is in their regulation polo shirts and tidy jeans. Of course, they're rubbing their eyes in disbelief when they see me. You all right there, Ridgie? They say, what's up? What's happened? What's the problem, mate? They love giving me heaps and I love confounding them, confusing them, keeping them guessing. (laughs) His whole life revolves around giving people heaps and getting given heaps. Yeah. And I also think, like, I don't think the team really cared as much about what he was wearing as he imagines <laughs> they did in his head. But he's very fashion conscious as well. Like, you know, how about your shirt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> men, that type of thing. When he's giving someone else heaps about their shirts. I just love his confidence and his ability. Like, it's palpable. Yeah. And, you know, so he had no doubts they were going to win. He said, Grass is green when well watered. A cloudless sky is blue. Canberra's the capital of Australia. Brent Todd bears an uncanny resemblance to Clutch Cargo and Manly are going to win the grand final. They're all facts as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I wanted to pull something up there. <laughs> Clutch Cargo. Do you know what that is at all? I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I was as unfamiliar with this name as you were, but uh, Clutch Cargo was a show that ran in America between 1959 and 1960 about a, a pilot that went on adventures with a young boy and his dog. For fans of Conan O'Brien, the thing he did with the lips, that lame bit, I never really got into that bit, but that is from Clutch Cargo. So Clutch Cargo did the thing where it was animated, but it had real person's lips. I didn't know that Clutch Cargo had any lasting cultural resonance, but um, maybe it was just a New Zealand thing. Well, that's up there with Warren Ryan and Biggles. <laughs> I know. I, I love the fact that his book came out in, you know, 1998, 1999, and that was allowed to stay in as a reference that people would understand. Well, that's another example of the editor either having no say or there was no editor. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to the game itself. And um, it, as always, I'm going to give the floor to you uh, for your opening thoughts on the game and the events within. Uh, yeah, well, my opening thought was disgust at the quality of the grass <laughs> the, it was the, like it, it was like the 1963 grand final after five minutes <laughs> but the middle of the ground was bald it looked like wimbledon on, um, <laughs> on day 13 right and the optus's logo was like looked like it was being graffitied on with a couple of cans it's like they sunk 200 million into the game to think they can get a bit of um bit of a decent logo or not and so, so that was the first thing i thought and then um then i got into the game how did it go from boggy like you know world war one era mud fields to like this pristine like you know fields you see today in like in the course of like 10 or 15 years like they completely fixed the problem two words mate modern modern drainage, drainage. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I was actually surprised how much I enjoyed this game. Like, it's the first time I've watched it since it happened. And, and maybe, like, you know, my experience of coloured in that regard. But I always, looking back, regarded it as, like, quite a pedestrian grand final that, you know, never really got going. But, like... Good play. It, it was actually... It was quite a compelling contest. Like, it probably fizzled out after 60 minutes or so. 
But the dragons like really threw everything at Manly. Like, you know, it was a really brave effort from them. No, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Wasn't as good as the Canberra match, but... No. But yeah, a few random thoughts I pulled out. One thing is you really saw the effects of unlimited interchange come into play. And it's no surprise that it was Bozo working it to his advantage. So the second half starts with Cliffy on the bench. He's on after three minutes. Three minutes after that, the Eagles are in a defensive position. So they bring him back off again. And then straight back, like, you know, less than a minute after that, he's back on when they're in an attacking position. Like, that was, like, distasteful. Not like having a go at Bozo or Manly, but just, like, the rule would, you know, make the game work like that. The heart was in the right place for that rule. And it was, yeah. it was shown to be a mistake, and thank God they rectified it. Yeah. Because it's not in the spirit of the game to, to turn it into gridiron. Yeah, yeah. And Sterlo said as much in the call. Oh, speaking of the call, it took Rabs 26 minutes to make his. And if you're joining us from, uh, you know, Botswana or <laughs> elsewhere in the world, you know, <laughs> which I, I think that must be a record for Rabs going 26 minutes. <laughs> I'd like to get a full list. It's probably a rugby league project now. Think of it. The full list of all the places he's name checked. <laughs> if you're watching from the gulags of Siberia. <laughs> Again, it was the Manly forwards who just tore the Dragons apart. You know, Kosef, Menzies, Gartner making this incredible run. He had an amazing game. Yeah. I think you wrapped him up last episode. He was probably the second choice for Clive Churchill for mine. Well, I've got some opinions on that. So let's hold off on Clive Churchill until after we've talked about the enduring moment of this match, which, Mm -hmm. you know... I. I partially set up in the opening monologue, but it is the Steve Menzies try as a result of the ridge being not held. So firstly, before we dig into the incident, was he held? I think about 60 yes, 40 no. Oh, really? I think it was like 120 yes, negative <laughs> 20 no. Like, it was... I've got some in-depth thoughts on oh, Okay, all right. Well, let's set up the incident before we dig into it in depth because I think there is some irony there after what happened in 1995 with the Eddie Ward grand final performance that you know we've discussed in the past and that 1995 grand final should be a clear-cut argument against manly bias that keeps on coming up but as it turned out it just led to being immediately replaced by a new manly conspiracy theory, which was that David Manson was the ref in 1996 because Manly got their way and, you know, they didn't want Eddie Ward. And as it turned out, they didn't get refereed by Eddie Ward throughout the 1996 season. That was, you know, pointed to as more evidence of manly bias. (laughs) Refuted by Bob Fulton, who said that we're not the only team who hasn't been refereed by Eddie Ward. And he is right, but, you know, 18 of the 20 teams did get Eddie Ward in at least one match during the season. So, But think of it this way. If you're the comp and one team's got a problem with this guy and you consider all the refs neutral anyway, it's like, well, what's the difference? Just keep them apart. Yeah, but I kind of think that you start getting into trouble when you do that. And especially when it's a team like Manly and the ARL can never escape the, you know, accusations of bias against Manly, you know. You saw it with Bill Harrigan after the cement truck incident in 1987. Harrigan's like (laughs) pulled from Manly games from the rest of the year. And it just seems to like make the problem worse. Whereas 
Yeah, if they just, I just think you maybe you're right. You know, in hindsight, <laughs> given Manly Eddie Ward against the Crushers or someone, and then suddenly like you know it silences some of the conspiracy. But so coming into the game, there's an irony there that I don't think Manly were cost the grand final. I think the Bulldogs were the better team. But that was a pretty spectacularly bad refereeing performance in the 1995 grand final. So we get to just before halftime in the 1996 grand final. The Dragons, who like were really threatening in the 10 or so minutes leading up to this, they managed to claw back with a penalty goal from the ensuing kickoff. Matthew Ridge brilliantly puts in a short kickoff, regathers, and then in my mind is tackled by Nathan Brown. Like Nathan Brown is standing up just like casually walking back to get into marker. Like it just seemed that it was just a tackle had been completed and he was getting ready to, you know, like play the ball and then suddenly Ridge takes off. So I don't know how you can see any gray area in this. Well, let's talk about the IQ, the football IQ of Matthew Ridge. Mm. <laughs> Conversely, the inverse IQ of Brownie. Right? <laughs> He's about 16 meters back for some reason. Yeah. And there's gaps of like 15 meters either side of him. So, I mean, imagine a short kickoff now in, in this day and age. Yeah. It would never happen. And then, like, why wasn't he up to 10 meters? It would have stopped Yeah, him. yeah. So he's already caused that himself anyway, Brownie, for mine. Then the genius bridge regathers and he's fighting and whatever. I think he was held, but the whistle hadn't blown. Mm. So why in a grand final would you just go, well, I think he's held? Yeah. Why wouldn't you just pull him down? Fair point. It was bad. But I think you're right about the brilliance of Ridge in setting that up and making it possible for him to then run on and, you know, we know what happens. But we talk about things like, you know, Ridge, like, paying out someone's shirt as a joke kind of thing. But I think it does go a long way to explaining Ridge the player. Like, he's just laser focused on identifying and exploiting weakness yeah yeah like he'll do that in the dressing room he'll do that on the field there are a few players who have that vision and to you know have that instinct to come up with a play like this and clutch like yeah. you know how many times do you see a short kickoff not even make the 10 and mm. go out on the fall or whatever the hell yeah 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 and he's in a grand final he gets it to the centimeter and beautiful play and yeah, so I thought it was really bad. Like, I thought it was an awful decision, but, you know, I can't fault the player of Ridge to do it. And also, what I think of first is the Raiders in the 2019 Grand Final. It was a bad decision, but it's how you respond to it. And a champion team responds and, you know, gets on with the game. I want to um, have another go at Saints fans here. Saints fans have been whining about this for how many years now? Decades. Yep. And we go back to the Bartram trial we were so happy about earlier. The play to ball in that try was not even a play to ball. It was a penalty to the opposite side. He didn't even get close to touching the ball with his foot. It just fell forward. Oh, come on. Uh, that that's th- th- Nobody from the Saints is going, that was the wrong decision. Kill the referee for that. I don't think that is in the same league. You take the good with the bad is what I'm saying. I agree with you in that I think Dragons fans need to move on with this. And my philosophy has always been that Manly were the better team. And like basically the Dragons were playing well and, you know, this killed the game for them. But, you know, it didn't have to. It's Ridge himself that created the doubt with his, you know, mongrel and his mm. arms flailing and anybody else that would have just been, oh, he's held. Yeah. You know, maybe Michael Hancock would have been the other yeah. one. <laughs> just the fact it was Ridge and I think anyone else that wouldn't have, it wouldn't have got away with it. Yeah, that's a fair point as well. I was pleasantly surprised at how comparably little whinging there was from the commentators they all voiced their disagreement but yeah they kind of got on with commentating 
And then I love the commentary. I love Gus in this commentary. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And so they they said, oh, I don't know about that, but you know, great play from Ridge. Look at that short kickoff. And then oh, Menzies is there. You know, like they addressed it, but then moved on. And then at halftime, Rabs like talks up the controversy or controversy as he kept on referring to it. <laughs> but it wasn't in like the whinging way you do it today. He was like adding to the drama rather than pushing an agenda. In other words, he was doing his job. It's absolutely night and day, the old commentary compared to modern commentary. Yeah. But so in the aftermath of the game, like it was pretty unanimous that he was held in the eyes of most people. David Manson was one dissenter on that. He thought that he made the right call. Mick Stone backed David Manson, which, you know, I think he should have come out and said it was the wrong decision, but, you know, it doesn't matter. But interestingly, you know how Rugby League Week will have the quotes from the day. They quoted David Manson's wife, Shirley, saying, uh, if you think you got it right, you're the only person in Australia who does. Which, like, <laughs> I can't decide whether David Manson really does have a wife named Shirley or if it was a garbage joke. <laughs> and then I'm like, would the editorial staff of Rugby League Week in 1996 have known who garbage was? <laughs> you got to go to um, Ian Heads for this one. <laughs> I would be shocked if Ian Heads knew who Garbage was. <laughs> but the tackle caused so much of a furor that Ray Hadley had to stop taking calls about it. So he announced to his listeners <laughs> uh, at 5.16, so, you know, 15 minutes after full time, that he wouldn't be taking any more calls on the tackle. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Is this bloke's eyes panning on or what, Ray? <laughs> but interestingly, and we'll move on from the tackle from here, but in the Australian, John McDonald said, The tragedy is that yesterday's grand final will be remembered as the one in which St George were dudded. Manly were the beneficiaries of the most controversial decisions since, well, since 1978, when a series of controversial decisions went their way. A couple of things on that. I think, like, outside of St George fans, I don't think it has been remembered that way. It's one of the defining, you know, moments in that game. But I don't think everyone is going like, oh, you know, Saints were dudded in 1996. Well, it's the same as the Canberra Grand Final where the ball hit the trainer in the head yeah. and we got a couple of dud calls. It's the only Canberra fan that remembers that. Everyone yeah. else just remembers who won. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing about it is that I would say that Manly got dudded way worse in 1995 than the Ridge tackle in 96. Like, as I said, the Bulldogs were the better team, but like a seventh tackle try, two forward passes, like that, in my opinion, is way worse than David Manson with the Ridge tackle. I really think when you open yourself up to it by playing like Brown did at that point, I mean, he had a good game otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just if you don't be assertive and throw the guy on the ground in the grand final and make sure he's down, you're opening yourself up for bad decisions. Mm, yeah. And as it turned out, the, you know, try went ahead, Manly go to halftime 14-2, you know, make it 20-2. Shortly after halftime, you know, the game's over. You know, the Dragons come back, make it 20-8, but basically from that moment on, they weren't going to win. And Manly are the 1996 premiers. So let's talk about the Clive Churchill now, which went to Jeff Toovey. And I got to say at the start, I think... Our dismissal of Tuvi as a Hall of Famer in our previous discussions Sickening. is the most egregious error we made in, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. hours of discussing players. Like, I don't know how we how we were so quick to do that. Like, I feel embarrassed. We've got to stop um, comparing blokes to the other guys of the era. Yeah, yeah. Um, and judge them on what they've done themselves. 
great game. You can't can't argue with the decision. I think there's a few other contenders, but firstly, just his on-field play in Lisa Olson's a match report. She said he didn't score, but he did everything else. It was Tuvi's kick that set up Craig Innes for Manly's first try. It was Tuvi's energy and verve from dummy half that sparked the Sea Eagles. And it was Tuvi's bone-jarring hits on Brutes twice his size that had all those Manly haters in the SFS mumbling into their beers. And that leads to the second really compelling case for Tuvi is just that toughness. The fact that he played with a fractured eye socket. (laughs) I think this game, or, you know, fracturing that eye socket the week before, this is probably where, you know, the, you know, the graph of Tuvi's looks went from, you know, on the downward slope from the choir boy of 87 to what he ended up as, you know, <laughs> I'll be kind and leave it at that. But um, but uh, again, in that same Lisa Olsen report, she said, this is a bloke who has scars on his earlobes. How does one get scars on their earlobes? The key to this grand final, toughness is just built in with this guy. We, we just take it as a fact, yeah. amazing, but his energy was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was always buzzing at the line mm. and... Yeah, it's just causing drama everywhere. Beloved and respected within the team and, you know, leads from the front. So I've got no argument with Tuvi getting it. It was a great year for me. Also got Man of the Series in State of Origin that year. But let's turn to some of the other contenders. So I know you mentioned one earlier, but do you want to complete that thought? I just thought Gartner was Taoiseach in this game. Yeah. Rampaging, I'd describe him as. Well, this is the thing. I think Menzies was the least of, and, and he did get injured during the game, which contributed to that. But he was the least of the manly back row, like, you know, the most celebrated one of them all. But like Nick Kosef, yeah. like some of the balls he was throwing, Gartner was incredible. But I actually think Ridge has a very good case of getting it as well. Yeah. Ridge came off with injury early in the second half. But I think he was on his way to a Clive Churchill like up to that point. Like obviously inspiring this try, he you know was forcing line dropouts like you know all over the place. Uh, just the class and the brilliance of him. Mm. For mine, Ridge was slightly below Tuvi, but I thought he was incredible. Yeah, agreed. So I think all of this you know goes a long way to saying that the best team clearly won. And I think Dragons fans can be proud of a great season, but let go of the ridge tackle. Where does it rank on the paint rank? <laughs> <laughs> See, like, I, you know, was too young for the 85 grand final, but when I went back and watched that game, that, like, shot right up to near the top of my pain rankings. And, and now I feel that loss viscerally. But after going back and watching this grand final, it didn't really, like hit me any worse i was like okay well we had such a great effort it was such a fun run but we were up against it and the better team won they were a beautiful team they really were yeah uh, and beloved by their former chairman ken arthurson who the post-match prezzo i love how he didn't even attempt to sound objective or neutral <laughs> Uh, but, you know, a fair speech. He, he wasn't over the top with it. I liked his comments of on Tuvi. He said, It's my pleasure to say that the winner of the Clive Churchill was, in my book, one of the toughest players to ever put on a football boot. And I really don't think anyone could mount an argument about that. Uh, so that led to the party, and Manly kept it local, hosting the night in the Peninsula Room at Manly Leagues Club. What a ridiculous comment. Like, Manly kept it local. Where, where else were they going to go? Across the bridge? <laughs> Imagine if they held it in, like, um, Abbotsford. (laughs) 
but I don't think the Stein featured until you know much later in the night or even the next day. I'm assuming that is where Matthew Ridge ended up. I'll, I'll read this passage out. Sally's been out partying in town the night before too. She's up feeding Jamie when I walk in. I say I could sleep for a week and go through and flop down on the bed. But in actual fact, I can't sleep. I'm tired, but as I'm lying there, all these thoughts about the grand final flying around in my head. So I get up and ring Craig Innes. Mate, I can't sleep. Neither can I, he says. So he walks back down to my place and off we trot back again to the pub. A few of the guys are still there. He did eventually have to cut those celebrations short because, of course, in the best rugby league tradition, he had to catch a plane to New Zealand (laughs) for the test series (laughs) the following day. Lose the game in one daily league. Yeah. (laughs) Someone has got to do something about the scheduling. So that was the party, uh, you know, just reward for a, a brilliant team in Manly. As for the meeting, a real tragic moment for the Dragons with Colin Ward's father-in-law dying of a heart attack in the grandstand just on full time. Jesus. Yeah, pretty crazy, That's hey? horrible. Obviously a, a much lower level of pain and heartbreak, but Johnny Raper had a bit of a, a tough day, which was self-inflicted as the night before the grand final, he was celebrating at the White Horse Hotel in Surrey Hills, leading the crowd in a rendition of the Saints Go Marching In atop a piano when he <laughs> he fell off the piano and uh, broke his ankle. <laughs> so he was seen... How old was he then? He would have been... Just about 60, I reckon, maybe mid-50s. Falling off pianos. <laughs> and he was seen limping back to his car when a group of Manly fans saw him and, and in their words, we can't have a legend limping. It's bad enough getting beaten. So they picked him up and carried him 150 metres to his car. So a, a nice, uh, you know, game spirit there emerging. How Johnny Raper's that story? <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got one that's even better. So uh, Johnny Raper had some extra motivation for wanting his Dragons to beat Manly, and that was pending legal action he had against Terry Hill and his uh, memorabilia company Blazed in Glory. <laughs> so Chuck was taking Blazed in Glory to court over a line of 500 signed Dragons jerseys. So he was approached to be part of this, you know, memorabilia drive, but he was offered $1,000 for the 500 signatures and would get no further cut of the sales. And he went back and asked for $30,000, which uh, in a direct quote from Terry Hill, 25 times more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So somewhere between 25 and 30 times more, let a mathematician work out the exact details, uh, but more than what the other players were getting. And firstly, I've got to say, how did they convince so many players to do it for a thousand bucks? Well, a thousand back then was probably 5,000 now. Yeah. It's like, I'd have signed my name if you do Yeah, yeah. Um, so part of Raper's refusal was due to the fact that he was launching his own memorabilia line. Uh, but the issue came to a head when... A advertisement for the jerseys appeared in big league with a mock-up of the jersey with Johnny Raper's name on it. And so that caused Johnny Raper to take action. Terry Hill was quick in defense and saying that it was all above board. He said, I'm not involved in this fiasco with John Raper. Everything was done fairly. <laughs> okay, so so that's Terry Hill's words. He's not involved in this fiasco with John Raper. 
Uh, he goes on to mount the rest of his defense. That was a mock-up jumper to show what it would look like. If you look closely, you'll see it has Norm Proven's name twice and things like that. It was never supposed to be the real jumper. How would he know if he's not involved with this <laughs> <laughs> that stood out to me as well but like just don't put his signature there in the mock-up so i think it avoided the courts in the end i don't know how the settlement came but it raised like questions of this conflict of interest that keeps coming up so uh johnny raper said the un- unfortunate thing is that i've always had a good association with terry hill as an australian selector and i've nothing against him personally and it's like you're an australian selector suing a guy who you know you're deciding on whether he makes the australian team well even worse than that if you're making money with the guy yeah 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 deciding yeah exactly <laughs> i mean that's just rugby league but i mean that was the start of the memorabilia buzz of the 90s yeah. which quickly uh, outstayed its welcome <laughs> are you saying the garage full of channel nine commemorative cricket bats i have mounted uh, aren't really worth like i, I can't retire on on their value <laughs> You're better off investing in uh, upper deck basketball <laughs> cards, mate. Uh, but besides the memorabilia, the proceedings at the Dragons went off without a hitch, highlighted by Mundine putting on a rap tribute with his hip-hop group Black Venom, and they composed a track called The Saints, which they were going to be singing at the Leagues Club. Uh, and his Black Venom bandmate Damien Lane said, this is Anthony's way of thanking everyone at St George who stood by him. So, um, you know, big gesture there from Chalk. We'd rather a card, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they actually sold 5,000 CDs of his uh, Saints rap. And I would love yeah, to, to know if anyone has a copy of that. Or even better, if anyone has access to the Broncos rap he released the next year, which um, I was unable to find. But yeah, like a bit of a, a jack of all trades, Mundine. But i got to say, he was electric during the finals and... Yet again, just a, another glimpse of the rugby league career we could have had if he'd stuck around. Yeah, that's a shame. But in the end, it was a great season for the Dragons and it you know gave the club some real hope after you know years of, of uncertainty about Super League, declining attendances. They managed to you know address some of those issues and have a really positive season. It was tinged with sadness with the fact that the team was about to be torn apart for real with... Many of those players, including Mundine, including Goldthorpe, you know, Kevin Campion, Nick Zisti went, Troy Stone, like, you know, half the team ended up going at the end of the year anyway. And I love this from David Waite. We talked about him last week as being like a really measured coach. And in the wake of players coming out and saying they'd like to stay at the club, he said, it's always difficult, I suppose, to leave a team that makes the grand final. But in this wide world of sport, you make decisions from time to time and you stand by them. I'd encourage the players to stand by their decisions. Stand up guy, isn't he? Yeah. I'll leave the, the last word about the Dragons to Warren Lockwood, who in the annual report wrote of that season as one of their finest on record and talked about the amazing resurgence which had captured the imagination of the Australian sporting public. And... Yeah, i got to say, it's not in, on the top of my pain rankings because of how fun the weeks leading up to it were. And um, yeah, like just an incredible three weeks of football, those first three weeks of the semifinals. And, you know, to go back to Paul Vorton, it was the fairy tale where they ripped the last page out. But, you know, Manly were the best team of the season, a fitting reward for them, but a lot of fun for St. George fans. I've got to agree, man. Like, and we've got to shout out again and again and again, Seagulls fan for the YouTube oh, channel yeah. because 
it gave me back the memories of that year that were gone, and I really, really enjoyed the season. Yeah, so unexpectedly, a really fun season. I've like thoroughly enjoyed, you know, researching this chapter and you know going through it with you over these four episodes. So I, I hope uh, to all listeners, you enjoyed it too, and I hope it's brought up some memories. But yeah, 1996, great year. You've outdone yourself with this one, mate. All right, so on that note, we'll get out of here. Uh, so we'll be back with another chapter soon. Uh, and until then, let us know what you think. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email us at therugbyleagedigest at gmail.com. Uh, but most of all, thank you for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Cheers. today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.